Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Joshua. We turn to Joshua chapter 1. If you read the last chapter of Deuteronomy and go right into Joshua 1, it's basically a continuous story. And this chapter in this book opens up a whole new era in God's redemptive plan. Reading from the Word of the Lord, Joshua 1, beginning at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will take possession, make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you, on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, to help them, until the Lord has given you your brethren rest, as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. This truly is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to keep the passage open as we look at it together this morning. Your congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the book of Joshua, in modern times does not get a very positive rating. 
people who are very, very sensitive to the whole matter of genocide take this story seriously and they find this is a completely unacceptable story. Because the model in our modern times is for the global village. Can't we all just get along? In Chicagoland, I sometimes see cars with the bumper sticker, Coexist. Coexist. And those letters make use of the symbols of a variety of religions. Basically, the message is, whatever your religion is, let's just all get along. And so the story that is told in Joshua is highly offensive to them. Because they say God obviously is commanding the genocide of whole nations. This is unacceptable. But brothers and sisters, Christians always read the Bible in context, don't you? Don't we? We must always read the story in context. And what is the context of the book of Joshua? Well, this is the context. This land of Canaan does not belong to Canaanites. That first of all. This land is the land that belongs to the Lord God Himself. And therefore, He chooses to give it to whom He will. And His promise to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that He would give this land, Canaan, to their descendants in time. And therefore, the Canaanites are actually inappropriate occupants of the land that belongs to the Lord God. Yes, but He commands that they be killed. Well, God is holy and just. And in the end, He will send the wicked to hell. He put His own Son to death on the cross. He is prepared to do that. And before we say that God is nothing more than, than vicious and, and heartless, remember this. The first thing that is conquered in the land of Canaan is not the city of Jericho. The first thing conquered in the land of Canaan was the heart of a Canaanite prostitute by the name of Rahab. That's the first thing that he conquers. He is merciful and gracious to a prostitute who throws herself on the mercy of God and on His people. Actually, if you go to Deuteronomy 20, and now I'm getting a little bit off track, there you will read that how Israel is to conduct war. Whenever you come to a city, offer it first terms of peace. If you have to go to war, then you go to war, but you do not kill the women and children. And don't burn down the trees. Deuteronomy 20. Therefore, the story that is told in Joshua is a story that belongs to this moment in redemptive history. This is not a book where you, you read it and you say, well, okay, go and do thou likewise. That's not the point. You read this story in its context of the Lord now giving the land of Canaanite to His people. And so that the charges that are made against God and the charges that are made against the people of God uh, in our modern day don't hold up when you read Joshua in its proper context. God has delivered His people, the church, from Egyptian bondage 40 years before. He stayed with His people through the wilderness wanderings, through all of their grumbling and their complaining. 
And now they are poised on the east side of the Jordan River, poised to enter the land that He promised to give them to their fathers. Moses is dead. Moses, in a, in a fit of anger, rather than speaking to the rock that water might flow, he struck the rock. And God said, you didn't believe me, did you? I will allow you to see the promised land, but you may not enter it. Josh, uh, Moses dies, as it were, by the front door of the promised land. He can see it, but he cannot enter it. And so now Joshua 1 is a new chapter. It begins a new story, a new period of time in God's plan to take over the whole world. Moses is dead, and now Joshua is called upon to fill the sandals of Moses and to lead God's people. And so I want us to focus this morning on Joshua 1 under the theme, The Lord Prepares Joshua for Leadership, for Conquest Leadership. Notice, first of all, the chain of leadership, or we might say the chain of command. Secondly, the equipment for leadership. And then finally, the call for leadership without fear. The Lord prepares Joshua for conquest leadership. Now, the name Joshua, it's actually a great name. He's the new leader. The name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh wins. Yahweh delivers victory to his people. It's a beautiful name. And he is now the new leader, now that Moses, the servant of the Lord, has died. And so this, this first chapter is very interesting in, in how it depicts pictures, sets us up for the chain of leadership. Because Israel as a nation here is viewed as a large army. Now in any army or armed force, there always has to be a chain of command. The Constitution of the United States identifies the President of the United States, Joe Biden, as the Commander-in-Chief. But underneath him are the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Under them will be the various leaders of the armed forces of the United States. There's a definite chain of command. And in this first chapter... Yahweh, who is fully in charge, is giving marching orders to Joshua, the earthly leader. And you can see that when you come to verse 10. Joshua then addresses the officers of the people, gives them their commands, and then in verse 16, the officers answer back to Joshua. We will obey. We will follow you. Anyone who doesn't will be punished. Just be strong and courageous. So there's a clear chain of command. And the church today still has that chain of command as well. Who is the head of the Christian church? No bishop. No pope. No minister. Jesus Christ and He alone is the head of the church. This is one of the great things the Reformation was awakened to in the 1500s. Christ is the head of the church. But Christ also manages His church by His Word and Spirit, utilizing the officers of the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. The the Bible is clear that these office bearers are under Christ. They're never over Christ. And therefore, their offices here on on this earth are ministerial. 
Now, if you remember your high school Latin, the, the word mini means less. And a minister actually means servant. Servant. Because the only magistrate, the one who does the greater things in the church, is Jesus Christ. He's the true magistrate, but the rest of us are his ministers, his servants. And as such, therefore, uh, they are never placed in the church to dominate others. Office bearers of the church are not here to dominate. They must care for us. And as we receive their good instruction and their care. And we, in turn, submit properly to their biblical teaching. The book of Hebrews, has two, Hebrews 13 has two verses that underscore that. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then again in Hebrews 13 we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no profit to you. So very clearly we see evident in Joshua 1 that there is a chain of leadership, a chain of command. But secondly, Joshua 1 uh, reveals to us a very interesting kind of equipment that Joshua must have for leadership. Now those of you who know history know that Operation Overlord, the Allied plan to invade Nazi Europe, Normandy Beach, June 6, 1944, You can well imagine that General Eisenhower and all the other leaders of the Allied forces had to go through and had to carry out a great deal of planning. How many soldiers do we need? Where exactly will we land? How many planes must be involved? How many ships must be involved? And they would consult the weathermen. You don't want to invade Nazi Europe during a great storm. They had to be sure that the weather was proper for the operation. A great deal of planning had to go to get the job done because the Nazis were not about to just lay down their arms and welcome these Allied soldiers. They were not going to invite them to sit on the beach and have a spot of tea. They would not throw down their weapons and run. You can be sure that the Nazis, wherever the invasion would would happen, would be armed and ready to strike back. Well, now, what kind of planning is Joshua given? Is he going to have Joshua go through something that Gideon later would do? You know, Gideon gets thousands of Israelite soldiers, and God says, that's way too many. Send those home who are nervous and afraid. And so thousands go home. And eventually, Gideon is pared down to 300 men. God says, okay, now we, now we have enough. Is Joshua put through that kind of a, a test to get the right number of soldiers? Or how many spears, shields, that kind of thing does he need? What are his weapons? God's directions to Joshua at this point strike our ears as very, very strange. In verses 7 and following, the Lord tells Joshua 
to be very careful to obey everything that God commanded in His law that He gave to Moses. Obedience. Joshua, you must be obedient. But then there's more in verse 8. Joshua should speak this law. He should talk about it. And he should meditate on it day and night. Think about it. Talk about it. Do it. Let it be so a part of you that it consumes your life 24-7. All the time. All the time. All the time. This is Joshua's weapon. The Word of God. This is the battle plan. Meditate on that Word and then do it, Joshua, and then you will have success. Do you think this will impress the Canaanites and their armies? How about the numbers? How about the numbers? How many soldiers are needed for conquering Canaan? Verses 6-8 through mention only Joshua. Take note of that. Only Joshua is mentioned. So that you walk away from those verses with the clear impression that the whole conquest rests on one man. Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be of good courage. Then you will have good success. It's all going to rest, it seems, upon this one man, Joshua, the son of Nun, the successor of Moses. Get the picture, brothers and sisters? Here we have one man. He's addressed. He's going to lead the earthly forces of the Lord's army. He's called by Yahweh, the Lord, to take the Word of God in in hand, read it, think about it, meditate on it, talk about it, do it. And then he will conquer the land. Does this sound like a joke? What is the man Joshua to do with this? I am to face the enemy, well-armed Canaanite armies. I am to face the army, these pagan armies, armed only with a Bible? The words in Joshua 1 that describe his equipment sound a lot like the psalm we sang earlier in this service, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 praises how blessed is the man who has no alliances whatsoever with the wicked. He doesn't talk, walk, sit with them. But instead, the man who is truly blessed delights in what? The law of the Lord. In it, he meditates. How often? Day and night. Day and night. He, you know what he's like? The man who does that is like a tree that is planted with roots deep in the soil. And it's next to a stream that never runs dry. Because that kind of a tree will always bear fruit on time. It will have a leaf that will not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. Now, I don't know what was in the heart and mind of the psalmist when he wrote Psalm 1, but I wonder, did he have in mind God's commission to Joshua in Joshua 1? 
And both of those, that psalm and this chapter, stand at very critical places in the text of Scripture. Joshua 1 is the opening salvo, you might say. It's the opening announcement before we get into the rest of the conquest. But Psalm 1 is the first psalm. It's the entrance into the cathedral where 150 psalms are going to be sung to the glory of God. And it commends the man who is loyal to the Lord and who delights all the time, all the time, upon God's Word. Now if you say Psalm 1 is a description of some of these fine members of our church here in Pella, well, how many of the finest saints here in Pella meditate on the Word of God day and night? I don't know of anybody who does that day and night. I can't. And delights? Sometimes I'm too tired to read. Sometimes I read it and say, Lord, that, that word hurts. The man who is blessed of the Lord delights in it. The, the church has always understood that Psalm 1 is fulfilled in one man, Jesus Christ. He's the truly blessed man who takes God's Word, delights in it, meditates on it, and who does it. And in everything the Lord Jesus Christ does, He is successful. He prospers. Joshua 1, therefore, also introduces us in the preparation and the equipment that the leader needs in order to be successful in the conquest of the land. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to believe that Joshua's first, his first instructions are not upon the number of men he needs, not on spears and swords or anything like that. His first instructions is, take this word, be in it, think about it, talk about it, do it. Those are his first instructions. And what happens if Joshua is successful? I'll read the text. Then if he is successful, then the people of the Lord will take possession of the promised land and they will enter the rest that God has in store for them. Look at verses 13 through 15. They will enter the rest. Uh, That's a fascinating word because I, I think God's people sometimes misunderstand what that word rest refers to. Canaan is not a retirement village. It's not a rest home. Rest here does not mean that they will sit on the porch in their rocking chairs, sipping a nice cold lemonade, you know, and watching the day go by. That's not what the word rest means. It has reference to being settled in the land, no enemies around, you're secure, you go about your work, You work for six days, you rest on the seventh day, you are settled and secure. That's what rest means. Settled security. You know, when we often a worship service is opened with words from Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Quite often we don't read the the rest of that psalm. Because if you read the rest of Psalm 95, you will hear something like this. Today, if you hear His voice, God speaks to us every time we gather for worship. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
as you did at Meribah, as you did in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test to see the proof, the evidence that I was really God. Though they had seen my great works, for 40 years I loathed this generation and said they are a people who go astray from the, in their hearts They have not known, they do not know my ways. And I therefore swore in my wrath, they shall not enter, enter what? My rest. They won't enter Canaan. In other words, the church dies. The church will die. If we do not listen to God's word, if we do not listen to his voice, History is filled with the carcasses of congregations that stopped listening to the Word of God, that stopped doing the Word of God. Their carcasses are everywhere. You can go to Europe and you can go into a church building and it is a museum. The church is told to listen to God's voice. If we don't, we die like many Israelites died in the wilderness. Rest in the promised land. It's not a rest home, but it means living, working, playing, enjoying the shalom and the peace, the richness of God's blessing and His presence. Perfect safety provided by our Heavenly Father. And then finally, in this chapter, we hear repeatedly, I'm sure you heard it when we read this chapter, repeatedly the call, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be brave. Go forward, Joshua. The Lord is with you. What a great future lies before Israel. If Israel, God's people, have a leader that takes this equipment to heart and leads without any fear, no fear of Canaanites, no fear of rebellious Israelites, no fear. And yet, what a strange kind of preparation this man Joshua is given the conquest of the land. But brothers and sisters, it really is not that strange. If we take our rootedness in the New Testament perspective, in fact, the New Testament perspective is simply a continuation of what we read here in Joshua 1. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, first of all, Joshua is a type of Christ. The name Joshua and Jesus is the same name. Okay, we spell it differently because it comes through different languages. But Joshua means Yahweh wins. Yahweh saves. Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Joshua, therefore, is a type of Christ. It all rests on one man in this story. But that's a prophecy of what happens now in the New Testament era. That everything rests upon Christ. And if Christ is successful, we enter the promised land. This chapter really, Joshua 1, is looking forward to something that happened even in Jesus' life. You know, when he was on trial, and he's standing next to or nearby the Roman governor, who's got all kinds of troops, The Roman governor Pilate said, are you a king? Because he he presented Jesus to the crowd, here's your king. 
And the crowd says, we don't want this guy as our king. We want Caesar to be our king. We'd rather live under Caesar than this, this Jesus. And so Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, um, yes, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Pilate doesn't understand what that means. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my followers would fight. Earlier, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when you know, an armed band comes to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He, he pulls his sword out and he swings at the head of the servant of the high priest, Malchus. The, the, the man fortunately, providentially ducked and only got his ear nicked, cut off. But Jesus promptly heals that ear. But he tells Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. My kingdom isn't brought into this world by physical swords. Put it away, Peter. You see, the struggle that you and I are engaged in in this year, 2021, is a spiritual struggle. It is not physical. It is spiritual. And therefore can only be uh, addressed, met with spiritual equipment. Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, that describes the kind of equipment the Christian should have for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not flesh and blood. It is against spiritual powers in the air. You know, we, uh, in the Chicago area, we sometimes hear this saying, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And Chicago has a lot of gunfights. But you don't bring a knife to a gunfight because you would be out-equipped. And therefore, brothers and sisters, if the conflict we face is spiritual, bringing physical armament to that spiritual conflict will never, ever work. If we think simply electing a good guy to a political office is victory for the church, we are sadly mistaken. Don't put your trust in horses or in princes of men. The conflict that we face is spiritual because our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and this flesh, never stop, stop attacking us. That's why Paul says this is what we need, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, readiness for the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's what we need in facing this conflict. And all of these things are given to us in the Gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take our guilt away and to give to us His own righteousness. That burden is lifted. He conquered death for us. That cold enemy is conquered. He's poured out His Spirit so that the Spirit of Jesus might take the wonderful things of Christ and apply them to our own hearts and lives. Then we can have faith. Saving faith. Faith that sees what Christ has done for us, that lays hold of the promises of God. We lay hold of that truth, even though, even though we still are engaged in a battle. 
against sin, our sinful nature, and this world. We read, we study, we meditate upon the Word of God, and that bears great benefits. Now that takes time, it takes effort, it raises questions, but the end result is truly, truly blessed. It's a rich experience. We are then ready to fight the spiritual battles that come our way. And there's no need for the church to engage in tricks or gimmicks or all kinds of silliness. As if that's going to meet the issues of the day, we take hold of God's Word and we follow Christ who has won the victory for us. What kind of conquest is this going to be? Told in the book of Joshua, it is a kind of conquest that the history of the world had never seen to this point. A totally different kind of warfare because the kingdom of God is a totally different kind of kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this raises some interesting challenges for us all, doesn't it? Because if you ask Joshua, how many military divisions do you have? God says, military divisions, what are you talking about? I am with my people. My name is Emmanuel. God is with us. He doesn't need divisions. You know, the story is told that during World War II, Joseph Stalin, the great butcher of the Soviet Union, did something that angered, publicly angered, uh, the Pope in Rome. And and Stalin was told, what you did uh, has angered the Pope. And Stalin said, how many divisions does he have? Well, communism collapsed. Stalin is dead. Christ is alive. Christ's kingdom will never be conquered, even though it suffers very much in this world today. Christ is king. And therefore, brothers and sisters, as we read this chapter, it challenges us too, does it not? Let me just raise some questions and issues that I hope can challenge our own thinking as we listen to God's Word in Joshua 1. Can we submit to the Lord's Word in humility? Seeking His face. Reminding ourselves that it is not our wisdom, it is not our strength, and it is not our cleverness that wins the day. But that victory will rest with Christ alone. Secondly, what kind of confidence do you have in Christ? Jesus Christ as our only leader. Do we really believe that our obedience is carried out with God's sure promise that I will be with you to the end of time? Third, how are you arming yourself with a better knowledge of God's Word? You don't have to tell people to be ignorant. They can do that on their own. But you and I have to instruct, to instruct others and instruct ourselves on what God is saying in His Word, the Bible. Fourth, Joshua is told to do what God's Word says. Now, we can't go into this in, in any length, but how are biblical principles applicable in home life, business enterprises, educational strategies, political issues, and on and on? To show to the world that God's Word actually works, if I may use a pragmatic It does work. And societies that subject themselves to the Word of God, that place it above them and themselves under that Word, 
historically have always thrived more than those societies that have rejected His Word. Finally, is Jesus Christ actually Emmanuel? The living Lord who is in the middle of this congregation. Now, we don't see Him physically, that's, but he's, he's here. And He says to us Sunday after Sunday, I am with you as you go forward to disciple the nations, instructing them to be obedient to everything I commanded you. He really is Emmanuel. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Joshua 1, therefore, is a glorious introduction to what God is doing through Jesus Christ in conquering this world for Himself. And we are part of that church who now face the same kind of spiritual issues in the year 2021. Christ has taken God's Word as His own mandate and He leads us now in the whole world. And He says in John 16, In this world you will have tribulation. You will face enemies. But be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. I'm the winner, says Jesus. This is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Christ. The power that Christ has. He could have called legions of angels to His defense in the Garden of Gethsemane. But He willingly allowed Himself to be humiliated that He might take our guilt away. But now, the Lord at the right hand of You, our Father, the great, great, awesome Lord that caused John on Patmos to fall down in awe and wonder. Lord Jesus, You are with Your people. Help us to take this life seriously. Not to be distracted by all the little gimmicks that the devil might put our way, the temptations that he puts in our path. Keep our eyes focused on that which is the most important, the service that we might give to you. And so, gracious God, strengthen our faith, not in our abilities, but strengthen our faith in Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. For we pray in his name, amen.